the first word is always the hardest of a talk. <laughs> when you open your mouth. <laughs> always have a big resistance to do that, but here we are. So tonight I'm uh, going to talk about wise view. And I'm speaking about it because we've already, Carol and I have both um, alluded to it uh, in a couple of other talks, um, but it um, has become such a central focus of my own practice. And also a few years ago, I was doing a series on the Eightfold Path for the Sangha in Seattle. And I started to um, uncover the depth of what wise view means to me. Because I had always heard it before. It wasn't necessarily that it was taught this way, but the way I'd heard it before was that the Eightfold Path was a series of steps. And you could sort of take them out piecemeal and do your wise speech part and then tuck it back in the bookcase and do your wise action. But um, I have since learned a very different relationship to the whole of the Eightfold Path. The way I would like to have us perceive it tonight is that there are seven, seven outward steps in a circle, and in the middle is the eighth wise view. And every line that goes from one step to the next goes through the center of the circle. So that, in fact, wise view holds the structure of the whole Eightfold Path within it. And I hope tonight as we explore this subject, you'll also see it as vital, vital to the often asked question, how do I maintain this practice when I leave? So wise view. And I need to give you a definition for what wise view is and what view is. A view is what we assume the world to be, what we take it to be. As Carol mentioned in her talk about wise view, that there's also a way to interpret it called wise understanding. I don't particularly like that definition because understanding is a cognitive, intellectual process, and view is immediate. Like right now, when you look out from your eyes, what do you take the world to be like? When you wake up in the morning, your thoughts form an assumption about how we are in the world. And this assumption builds our relationship to the day and to our living experience and to everything else in our life. And the assumption that most of us take is the assumption, as we open our eyes, of multiplicity. Objects, me, subject, working my way. And with that view comes an acquisition because I'm here feeling deprived and alone and I need to work effectively towards my gain and satisfaction. And so having and not having and all of the strategies that most of us employ in our life have to do with the view that we assume of it. Hmm? Accumulation, ambition, greed. 
And then all the mind states that are permutation from those strategies like envy, jealousy, hatred, all of them, <laughs> all of the unskillful states come from the assumption of, of a wise view of holding the universe in a certain way. And regret and shame and all of that. I was once doing a workshop uh, for the staff here at IMS. It was uh, maybe four or five years ago. I can't quite remember when it was. But I, what I did was I, um, I read them a story, had them lie down and read them a story about um, uh, a terminal disease that they each acquired. And then I led them through the processes of, of the dying and to the point in which they were actually going to die. And then I had them die. And then I asked them to look around and to assess their life from that vantage point of being at the end of it. And, and then we came back together and discussed what that was like for them. And I remember that two of the staff who are no longer with us. They didn't die. But <laughs> <laughs> They said, uh, I died regretting my life. I died regretting my life. And uh, that sent uh, them into a whole sense of uh, self-reflection. But just think with that. From wise view, from wise view, you do not die regretting your life. From unwise view, I've gone through so many deaths and so many unwise views and seen so many deaths result in just that statement. That there's a certain urgency that I feel that I hope I can convey to you about this great, great need to come to understand what wise view is. Now, the Buddha said, wise view is so important. He, and he gave many metaphors and analogies, but he, one that, that captured my attention was, he says, without wise view, your spiritual progress will be like trying to churn butter from water. Okay, so this is essential. And I was picking up the Buddha's suttas uh, some time ago, and I happened to read a sutta that I'd like to convey to you that um, at first I didn't understand but made sense uh, upon reflection. The Buddha was in attendance to a group of uh, monks and lay people, a large audience, and in crawled two ascetics. One was a dog ascetic and one was an ox ascetic. And I say that they crawled because they were acting like their name, an ox and a dog. And they crawled in and it said that the ox ascetic had a tail pasted to his behind. And the dog ascetic only ate things that was thrown to him. On the And you know what? What was amazing to me is that the Buddha treated them with respect. I mean, here were two 
very strange men. <laughs> and it said that the dog, it said it curled up like a dog at the Buddha's feet. I don't... So he <laughs> delivers a discourse or whatever he does and asks for questions or something. And the cow ascetic, the ox ascetic, raises his hoof <laughs> and says, uh, says, if I keep practicing in this manner, what will I become? And the Buddha said, I don't want to answer that. Now that's not a good sign. But in accordance to those days, the ox ascetic asked three times. And the Buddha then said, okay, the best that you will become living like an ox, the best, the best is that you will be reborn as an ox. And you, dog, <laughs> you'll be reborn as a dog. At which time, I think the ox ascetic jumped to his feet <laughs> and asked for ordination. Now, I read that sutta, close the book up and say, now what does that have to do with me? I'm not practicing like a dog or an ox, sometimes like an ass, <laughs> but, <laughs> but not like a dog or an, an ox. And I, th I think, well, it doesn't really have, oh yeah, wait a second here, something comes through upon reflection. The Buddha is saying, if you practice like anything, that is what you'll become. In fact, if you practice like an individual, you will become an individual. That is the best that this practice will evolve you into. Now, suddenly, this is a very personal sutta. Now, suddenly, I hold the sutta with great reverence because I know he's talking to me. And I know that my practice for many, many years was based upon me practicing from the sense of individuality. It was about my gain, my ambition, my needs. It was about me, the meanness of it. Continued. Now, wise view is not about me. Wise view is about interconnectedness that defies what we see with our eyes. Let me give you a shift, an attempt, so that you can just shift into wise view. What many of us have done in accordance with this retreat is that we try to establish awareness, right, as a person being aware. But just in the, in the moment as I sit here, just... Establish awareness. Be a person. Person being aware. Having the experience of awareness. So though awareness is being touched, the view of a person having it is not wise view. Now let's just shift it for a second. Now have awareness having the experience of a person. Awareness, having the experience of a person. 
Let's feel the shift. Feel the shift. That's the shift from unwise view to wise view. Much of the screams that all of us faced as we entered this retreat, the difficulty, the volatility, emotional and physical, the pain, the brow and breast beating events of the first two or three days, was that we were changing slowly from unwise view into the intimations of wise view. And the self was loath to give up that strategies, those strategies of life. And yet the meditation only works in accordance with wise view. But we fight desperately to hold on to our particular reference of our internal stream of events, our emotions, our thoughts, our physical sensations to hold on to the meanness, the meanness that wise view determines. Uh, excuse me, that unwise view determines. Hmm? And slowly over time, as the practice unfolds, as we get more comfortable with ourselves, as we begin not to fight what is there, as we begin to connect to what is there through acceptance, allowance, just letting be, suddenly the sense of self, the sense of self, isn't so, the sense of me isn't so uh, tenacious. We just see an emotion as an emotion. We just see a thought as a thought. We just see a feeling, etc., 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 just as what it is. And this is the emergence of the of the meditation itself, the influence of the meditation itself upon the very view that we hold to life. We're letting it affect us. And now we come to a much easier way to live. Many of us here in the course of this week have found an environment internally that is much more comfortable than the environment that we initially came into the retreat with. Because the view is moving towards wise view. Almost beneath our knowledge, beneath our awareness, there's this evolution that is occurring. And now in a few days, a couple of days, we will be leaving, and very quickly, the forces of the world will come back and unwise view will regain its assertion. Just, it, it won't, for many people, it takes no longer than getting in the car and having the first vehicle honk their horn at you. <laughs> Immediate, because the world does not accommodate wise view. It accommodates unwise view. It accommodates thingness, unis, meanness, and thereby meanness. Now we begin to see that upon leaving the retreat, I try to sit in the midst of my daily activities, in the midst of my needs to go to work, to do my job, completely caught up in unwise view, 
I sit with a method that only works within WiseView. And the methods that we employ, the mindfulness training, to be mindfulness, feels like a burden for an unwise view. Something additional that I have to do today. I have to be mindful. Lifting, feeling, touching. God. (laughs) Because the view and the method are are in opposition to one another. This method must be in accordance with a view. Look at the Eightfold Path. Take every and each step. If I pull out the step Y speech, and I use, okay, I should, I should talk correctly. I'm using it in a moralistic, individual way as a way for self-improvement. Now bring in wise view. Suddenly, I'm not using it in that way, I'm using it to breach connection. So that I, I begin to use my speech for interconnectedness. Now it has nothing to do with me, it has to do with using speech in alignment with the true and natural way things are, which is interconnectedness. Now, it makes complete sense why wise speech needs to be practiced. Hmm? And that meditation, which are the last two to three steps in the Eightfold Path, cannot be implied unless the umbrella of wise view also extends to those steps. So we can't sit meaningfully in our life, practicing individuality and self-improvement, being angry and angst and fearful at our boss, our loved one, and everything else in our life, and expect the meditation to work in the way it's supposed to work. It may bring me a little calm, it may bring me a little self-improvement, but it won't work in accordance to the way it's supposed to work or you're just going to die as a better person. That's it. That's what you'll get out of it. And there is something vast that will have missed you completely. And so the effort, wise effort, needs to go not only in terms of the effort to stay awake, but the effort to release ourselves from the assumptions of unwise view, of two-ness, of multiplicity. The wise effort must be towards wise view. And then we use the basis of our lives to let us know when in fact we are going in opposition to wise view. For instance, every unwholesome quality of mind, state of mind, only exists in unwise view. Anger, fear, 
irritation, impatience. I don't have to go through the list. So if we can allow those very qualities of mind that come up in us all to act as cues to awaken us to the fact that we are holding and assuming life to be different than it really is. And we sometimes have to go just on faith on this. Because it may not be that we feel it in our bones. But we know it in our heart. We know it in our heart. Because it doesn't feel good the other way. Because it hurts. And so I listened to the hurt. And I thought, okay, I'm, okay, let's get back here. So we suspend, suspend the assumptions of you and meanness, of self and other. You suspend it. The precepts. We, Guy chanted the precepts um, before the retreat began and they will probably be spoken about at the end. Each of the precepts only work, only work in accordance with wise view. Or they work in accordance to making us more moralistic. No one wants to be a crying televangelist thumping his fist against the sins of humankind. We're beyond that. We've evolved through that. We want to use these things, these precepts, as ways to wake up. As indicators that, like a ox touching an electric fence gets shocked so too when we violate a precept it's not a cause for shame and guilt but rather a call to awaken through the assumptions that have held us into doing that unskillful act now the other thing that's very helpful and wise view in teaching us about wise view is death. My topic of choice. So let me tell you a story about how death works towards establishing wise view in your life. In the Old Testament, there's the story of King Solomon. And a woman comes to the king Two women come to the king, each fighting over an infant that they claim to be their own. One is the birth mother. The other is some attendant or other that claims ownership of the baby. And they come to the king to ask for a solution to this problem, fighting over the baby, practically pulling the child apart. The king sees the two squabbling parents and says, okay, I've got it. I'm going to take my sword and cut the child in half and give you each half. Suddenly the birth mother says, wait a minute, she can have the child and gives the child up immediately. Now to me, that is the movement from unwise view of the squabbling and the 
commodity of having my possession to the immediate revelation and surrender and therefore the heart response of letting be, of letting go. No longer is it about me, it's about the welfare of those involved. It's then said that the king gave the birth mother the child. When we're in wise view, the heart arises. The heart is accessible. The heart is, it's, wise view is led with the heart. Here's a personal um, example. I have a good friend whose sister, a 42-year-old woman, tried her whole married life to have a child, unsuccessfully. At age 42, uh, she conceived a child, only to learn at that time that she had breast cancer. She declined any treatment for her breast cancer because she didn't want to jeopardize the fetus's life with radiation and chemotherapy. So nine months later, she delivers a healthy baby boy, only to find out that she has metastatic breast cancer and only a few weeks to live. In fact, she only lived six weeks. Now this story isn't about the reactions that we might have to such a tragedy, although we could certainly take it that way. The question that I would like to pose and the question of wise view is what do you think the child's, the mother's relationship with her child was for those six weeks? You think she missed a breath of that child's life? Quantity of time is no longer even conceivable. You don't think about wanting to see the child go through grade school and into high school and dating and all of it, and then marriage. You're not, it's about each and every precious moment of a relationship that you have been living your whole life to establish. The heart, it's not just an awareness, it's an affectionate awareness. It's awareness that holds and cares and is totally present. Wise view is that relationship with life. Along the meeting of what Guy talked about last night, the compassion and warmth, friendliness of life, as well as the meeting of insight. Death shatters wrong view because nothing can withstand death. If it were just about having and holding and me and you and the things of the world, and death were not a part of that, then we could play with that a little bit. But death wipes away the slate. Every relationship ends in separation. All coming together 
ends in dispersion. Everything is gone. So why put more, so much at stake? Why surrender so much of life to something that is going to be wiped away anyway? And death ends the story of me. I love that. Because the only thing that keeps us from wise view from this moment is the story of me. But death ends that. So let us walk invited into the moment without the story. Then we enter the deathless with a view that cannot be destroyed. And from this vantage point, the practice we do springs from enlightenment. It does not go towards it. It's not about the movement, the journey, not about the acquisition or the gain or the desire or the fear. It's about just this. Just this. And where can the screams of the first few days enter just this? Where can we brow and breastbeat ourselves when it's just this? The moment, then, is not a means to an end. It's the end itself. It's just this. I was once with a very well-known and a deep spiritual master called Nisardagada, Nisardagada, Nisarda, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who wrote, I am that. And I was sitting there as a monk, and I had my full robes on, and uh, he brought me up front, And then he started to dialogue with me. And he showed a lot of interest in me. So I was very pleased that he showed interest in me. And so for two or three days, he had me sit up front and was showing me a great deal of attention. On the fourth day, I come in and I take my usual spot. And he says, why are you sitting there? And I said, you don't want me to sit there, or why, why shouldn't I sit there? He says, no, I want you to sit in the back because you've been giving me three days of garbage and I'm sick of hearing it. <laughs> and he says, furthermore, I don't want you to say anything again until you can say something wise. So for the rest of the time I was there, I would try to raise my hand and say something wise, only to be laughed at by this man. And finally he said to me, he said, you know... 
you're like someone who's carrying a flashlight trying to run beyond its beam. He says, you're carrying, these are my words now, but this is what he meant, you're carrying wrong view with you. I'm sitting here in wise view. If you want to come meet me, meet me in that and give up your assumptions. Or, he said, you can continue to practice for the next 20 or 30 years, and then through your fatigue, then you come and meet me. 20 or 30 years later, I'm understanding what he meant. Feel the shift of the energy now. We are awareness is having the experience of a person. Where do we go? What do we do? What needs to be done? What needs to be added? What needs to be changed or altered? In the Upanishads, it said, not that which the ear hears, but that whereby the ear can hear. That alone is Brahma, the Absolute. Not that which the eye sees, but that whereby the eye can see. That alone is Brahma, the Absolute. Not that the mind thinks, but that whereby the mind can think. It is not what happens to us, but the space in which it happens. And the story of the me, which kept us so focused on unwise view, which kept us so contained, which kept us so struggling, in such annoyance, in such self-bitterness, cannot enter that space because the very absence of it is that space. Stepping out of the conditioned movement of me I enter wise view. Just this. And then I begin to understand how I have just laid the wrong emphasis on things. 
It's not that it was wrong or bad. It needed to be in order to bring me here. And so I don't begrudge that time. But neither do I carry it with me. To let go of the story. Marcel Proust said, the real voyage of discovery exists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Feel the quiet, feel the silence, feel the stillness. That is waiting for us. As the view shifts. Intimate it. Don't coat it with a me story. Don't allow a reference of me. Just intimate it. Perhaps all the books, all the teachings, All the lineages and traditions point to this. And we move in it, in the delight of each other's company, in the warmth of the communion of humankind, of all beings. Else, how could it not be? Not that which the ear hears, but that whereby the ear can hear. To get lost in the forms of the world is to get lost back in the me and thou, and the that and the this, and the you and the enemy and the friend. In forms, stories of forms, in the forms of the me stories, are never ending and never cease themselves, cannot cease themselves. And to use the stories to try to come to the end of stories does not work. We simply have to end the story. We simply have to put the word down. And many of us are too interested in practicing the refinement of the story rather than to lay it down. It's almost like we have to do penance because we don't feel worthy of entering that stillness. 
and the story end. That is what we're here to find out. That is what the retreat's about. So we may hear this lecture and say, I don't know. Perfect. But let's see. Let's move together with this and see. Can we sit for a couple of minutes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.